Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. We're happy to return tonight to discuss Landlord-Tenant Law, the first such installment for 2024. I'm the host of Your Legal Rights, Jeff Hayden. For the last generation, our legislature, our state government's been creating jobs, but with a minimal increase in housing. A housing shortage was the inevitable result. Housing prices reached an unsustainable level. Purchase prices are even higher, forcing folks into the rental market where they compete with short-term rentals in addition to other prospective renters. Housing was perhaps the single largest area of activity in the legislature last year. Since 2019, when the legislature started pressuring landlords a bit as part of the solution to the housing shortage, beginning with the California Tenant Protection Act of 2019. But now, what landlord-tenant changes went into effect in recent months? Are there other new developments in the legislation on the horizon? As always, we want to give you our most important guest, give you a chance to join in the conversation. So give us a call. Our phone number here in the studio is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can ask about anything. You could join with any comment on tonight's topic of landlord-tenant law. You don't have to jump into the exact moment of our conversation. But bear in mind that our attorney guests are here to educate and inform. They can't provide specific legal advice for a case they have not seen, but they're here to help. They're here to give guidance as you try to sort out the legal principles. Returning tonight as our guest three of the Bay Area's top landlord-tenant attorneys. For some 20 years, San Francisco landlord-tenant attorney Jessica Chilek represents clients in rent board actions, mediations, and court for landlord-tenant issues. Jessica launched her practice to specialize in San Francisco residential evictions, vacancy agreements, and rent board petitions for tenants, landlords, master tenants, and subtenants. And joining us from San Mateo, Attorney David Finkelstein, a graduate of NYU School of Law. David is admitted to practice in the state of California and the state of New York, beginning his career as a staff attorney in California for the National Housing Law Project at Bolt Hall Law School. And for the last 40 years or more, David's been representing clients in real estate and landlord-tenant matters. David recently wrote an article on the issue of protection for renters during the COVID-19 crisis. It was published in the Apartment Owners News Magazine. And hopefully joining us a bit later on, and also from San Francisco, Attorney Salvatore Timpano. Sal is considered one of the top attorneys in the Bay Area to practice in the area of landlord-tenant law, representing both landlords and tenants in the area of eviction. And with that, David, Jessica, welcome to your legal rights. 
Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here again. Yes, thank you very much. You know, let's, uh, I brought up moments ago, the Tenant Protection Act of 2019, that's AB 1482. Has that fully rolled out? Yes, it has. Um, the landlords are required to give uh, notice to existing tenants of the Protection Act and its requirements. And in any new leases, it has to be included as part of the lease language. Yes. And uh, as far as uh, in my practice, I, I see in, um, in most, if not all of the car form uh leases and uh that they uh that there is a a standard addendum uh, that provides the notice and it has a little box to be checked if there's an exemption for being uh, a single family house and it meet it meets the other requirements of the exemption that um and uh that has to be uh notice given to the tenant if you want that exemption and if you don't check that box then you don't you do not get the exemption and um, unfortunately I've seen some where the brokers gave the form but actually forgot to check the box or they they thought it was automatic without checking the box which could have unfortunate uh, uh, results. The point being that if you are writing a new le- rental agreement, you have to check that box if your property qualifies for the exemption. If you don't check the box, it's automatically under the statewide rent control and eviction control rules of the Tenant Protection Act. And how does the rent control under AB 1482 compare to some of the more localized rent controls that we've been seeing? In general, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. In my opinion, it's much more lenient uh, than the, the, um, for example, the San Francisco rent control, because generally the statewide rent control uh, provides for a a limit um, on rent increases of of uh, five percent plus the CPI increase for that county not to exceed, you know, 10%. Whereas uh, Jessica can state, you know, the rent control in uh, San Francisco is far more draconian. Uh, and uh, uh, what is it? the increase there is what limited to what about 2% a year or something like that. Well, the most recent one for the period March 1, 2023 to February 29th, 2024 is 3.6%. It's actually a bit higher than it's been over the last years. The last period was 2.3 and the one before that was 0.7%. So you can see that even in San Francisco, it's higher than usual. Higher than usual, but less than we've been hearing for the last couple of years about what's happening with the cost of living. So Sounds like where they're really more geared towards sharing the pain rather than letting the landlord recoup all of what the pain would be. 
mm-hmm. putting all that pain on the on the tenant. Correct. Let me turn it to Harry from Belmont, our first caller. Harry, welcome to your legal rights. Harry, are you still on the line? Harry. Can you hear me? We can yes. now. Harry, welcome to your legal rights. Oh, yeah. Thank you uh, for taking my call. I live in a three-floor apartment building. I live on the second floor, and my neighbor who lives in the third floor walks around at all hours of the night. I ask him nicely a few times to be gentle. He doesn't care. I complain to the property management a few times. I hear nothing. I called the police, and then they said there's nothing you can do because there's no law against walking. I can sleep fine, by the way. And then this also affects my next-door neighbor. Um, he also compl- She also complained, and there's nothing uh, we can do. Seems like it. I called the San Mateo Legal Rights. San Mateo Legal Aid Society, Department of Housing of San Mateo, and then Project Sentinel. So, what's my option here? What is the reason that the person walks so much at night? Do they have, like, a disability that they require, you know, to do their exercises, or is it something different? No, he said he has a... um, um, graveyard shift. Okay, and you said that you can sleep w- anyway, so um, how is this affecting yeah. you? I mean- well, when he walks at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 2 a.m., the floor creaks and it vibrates. So that's what wakes uh-huh. me up. This happens every single night of the week. Well, you know, uh, you do have the right to move out, uh, I assume you don't want to do it because you like where you're living and it's uh, reasonably priced. Uh, that is correct. Uh, uh, you could ask the management to put down uh, even a throw carpet up there might might help. You could, you know, even talk to the tenant and I mean, I don't know how much a throw carpet would cost, but I could imagine. I don't know. I'm, I, 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 I may be speculating. It would be less than a hundred dollars, or a hundred dollars or so, to uh, and ask him. Say, look, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for the uh, carpet so it doesn't wake me up at night. And um, and if he won't do it, and the management won't do it, then maybe you need to go to see a local attorney who might send a letter uh, asking them to abate a private nuisance. I called a lawyer. Yeah. I called a lawyer and he suggested one, one option is to sue the property management, but I have to move out. Is that correct? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm talking about abating a private nuisance. I don't think you have to move out. But what I'm saying here, the solution might be a hundred bucks or so for a throw carpet that would uh, maybe stop the vibration and uh, and and de- deaden the sound. Um, so, I mean, 
that's my suggestion. And if 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 they won't go for that, then have a lawyer send them uh, a notice to abate a private nuisance. Okay, because I tried to get a restraining order, and then it was denied as well. Yeah, a restraining order would not be in order in that case. Restraining orders, civil restraining orders are for, you know, um, very severe harassment. Yeah, physical violence. violence. It's not limited to physical violence, but it doesn't sound like this person is going out of their way to create the noise and harass you and follow through with it. It sounds like it's just somebody who's careless and it happens those hours. Yeah, he's uh, when, really in, inconsiderate. When people walk by during regular hours during the day that are going upstairs and the like, do you get the same level of noise, but it's just a more tolerable time? Or is this person way noisier than the other people who pass by? Uh, the floor creaks, so even my floor creaks, uh, so I can hear when people walk. Uh, but this guy walks at all hours in at the night that's that's the issue here it it sounds as though and i don't practice landlord tenant but it sounds to me as though the problem then isn't the way the guy's walking or where he's going so much as that the building carries noise and he happens to be coming in and out at odd hours and, and that sounds uh, he- to me like you've been getting like you got some really good advice to see what you can do that might quiet, you know, what might uh, deaden some of that noise by putting in a carpet or or whatever you can do to keep it from coming through. Okay. All right. Let's see what I can do. Thanks for the advice. All righty. Thank you for joining us. And I'm sorry you're yeah, living with you. that. Uh, that's the sad part about a nuisance is that um, it's really a juggling between his right to come home from work what he's done and your no. right to the apartment and it really comes down to what what can be done at the that would be the least damaging to everybody and I think yeah, so damage, he works like at idea. home he works at home so he's pacing back and forth so you can hear he's moving things moving objects could be a furniture or it could be anything so that's also the problem not just simply walking around, but you can hear he's moving some objects at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. You know, one place you might try calling is the Peninsula Conflict Resolution and see if they could set up a mediation between the two of you. They're here on the peninsula. It's, it's close to where you are. They do service this geographic area. And maybe having somebody talk with each of you and see what you guys can work out that would make it palatable to both of you might be something you would consider. Peninsula Peninsula Conflict Resolution? Resolution? Yes. Yeah. I I have had one or two cases like like this where we um, resolved it with uh, a carpeting with a pad underneath the carpeting. Uh, Even... even, um, Throw carpets can come, or you can buy it separately with like a rubber pad under the carpet, and you put the rubber pad down, and then you put the carpet over it. And that, I mean, it's not going to be completely soundproof, but it would should substantially deaden the sound. 
Okay. You might look at a large bathroom rug because they've got the, uh, they tend to be very thick and plush. They've got the rubber backing already stuck to it and it'll accomplish both of those objectives and they're pretty inexpensive. Okay. All right. I'll look into it. Well, thank you so much. All righty. Best of luck. Thank you. And let me turn it to William from San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. You're on the air. Hi, good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Um, taking this on behalf of uh, a few friends. They've got a spot out on uh, Treasure Island, San Francisco, and um, they've got one of those those old units that used to be, I think, a Navy. So right now they they have a uh, three-bedroom, two-bath, I believe, um, and... You know, eventually they're going to tear down those units. So they have been, I think, promised um, a spot in whatever condominium they're building. However, they will not be getting a comparable unit. So I was just wondering, you know, how could that be possible um, if, if the unit they're being moved to is, smaller square footage and uh, less bedroom. Thank you. Well, basically the answer to that is um, the folks on Treasure Island are making them an offer to, you know, have a unit. It would be an updated unit, you know, that um, has modern fixtures and and electricity and and things like that sufficient for the electronics we use today and that sort of thing. So, um, they're kind of using those ad- advantages to offset the number of bedrooms that they're offering. Um, I don't know off the top of my head uh, what kind of units they're building. It may be that they're not going to have three bedroom buildings, you know, but it's up to the, um, your, your friends, the tenants there who are, if, if they want something specific like three bedrooms or, or four bedrooms or whatever to negotiate with them. And if they don't have those availabilities or they're not going to provide them, then, you know, they may want to move to a place that does. Mm-hmm. Jessica, is are they, is he talking about an Ellis Act eviction or, or not? No, he's talking about on Treasure Island, there's um, some old Navy housing. Uh-huh. That has been uh, co-opted for use for lower-income folks and veterans and things like that. And as they replace that housing, they're offering um, the tenants the ability to move into a different kind of new unit. I'm not sure if it's a right of first refusal. It might be, but um, you know, they're they're offering that they can come back and live on Treasure Island in the new properties you know, in the newly built properties, but they may not be offering exactly equivalent units. Yeah, not an Ellis Act, a little bit different. Even even under AB 1482, uh, if there's going to be a substantial remodel or or destruction and rebuilding, you're supposed to offer some kind of offer for the tenant to come back and so I guess this would qualify even under under that uh, system. I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not as familiar, but I believe Treasure Island is considered federal government property. 
I do. I don't do very much on Treasure Island myself. Do you happen to know who the landlord is? Uh, I think that the, it's managed by a company. Yeah, I've been out there a few times. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's definitely managed by a company. Yeah, that wouldn't tell us if the landlord is a government entity or if it's a uh, private individual because they could all be managed by companies, but I understand. Yeah. Would it be in their best interest? I know this is all pretty vague, but I've encouraged them in the past to to get to seek legal counsel. I mean, would that be a waste of their money? Is this even possible? No, well, sure, yes. Um, the San Francisco, uh, the Bar Association of San Francisco has a lawyer information and referral service um, that if they charge anything, it's like $35, and you get a half hour free with a lawyer to work out. And then if they out, want to pursue you know, it, they've taken the lawyer for a test drive, and if they want to pursue it and don't like the lawyer, they can always change. If they decide there's nothing worth pursuing, they can walk away, but 35 bucks or so for a half-hour consultation is a great gig. Mm, I, I, I would agree, and it's possible that that lawyer could write a letter for you and maybe uh, ask for a larger apartment, and maybe they would do that. Their yeah. number is 415-989-1616. 415-989-1616. And we'll be giving that out again in about 10 minutes. No, eight minutes. Thank you very much. They are one of our sponsors, yes. All righty. I hope we've been of some help, William, and thank you for joining us in Your Legal Rights. Have a great evening. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW. Tonight we're talking landlord-tenant law. We'd love to hear your calls, answer your questions. Our number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside the Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as you've heard, We may be talking about new laws that are taking place, but that doesn't limit what you call us about. Call us about any landlord-tenant question you have. We'd love to have you join us in tonight's conversation. One of the things we started talking about, it was on the horizon last spring, was AB 12. And I remember, as, as long as I can remember, moving into a new apartment or Renting a house meant saving up a couple months' rent for security deposit and last month's rent. If you have pets, maybe a little more. If it's furnished, maybe a little more. All that's changed, hasn't it? Yes, the uh, security deposit is limited to one month's rent pretty much across the board now for any new rental agreements. And that includes everything, right? First month, last month, furnished, unfurnished, pets, whatever. Right. Um Because, well, you know, previously, last month's rent was considered part of security as well. I mean, that you weren't allowed to have two months of unfurnished apartment security, you know, rent as security plus a last month's rent. It was all 
put in one bucket as far as the legislature was concerned. So, but going forward, yes, that one month rent is, is intended to cover all those things. Yeah, except that there's an exception for owners of no more than two rental properties comprising no more than four units can request up to two months rent as a security deposit. Right. So that would mean somebody would have to have like two two flats or something like that, right? Four units total or four units per property? David? Yeah. Uh, um, no more than four units in total. Yeah. Right. Okay. So two units per property. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. So Just trying to... A... Go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say somebody with a four-unit building is covered as long as they don't have other properties that they're renting out. I think so. I think it yes, would. I would think so. So there are a lot of mom-and-pop uh, landlords who would still be exempt. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. So, so that, you know, like if you only owned one property... And you know you were renting out, renting it out, maybe staying with a parent or something like that yourself. In my experience, the newest properties were typically outside of a lot of control. The big, big property with many units typically were charging more rent. They may have a few more features, but charging more rent, more deposit, more difficult. And the mom and pops were the relief valve. And it sounds like the legislature finally caught on and might be working to put some constraints on the large units also. It seems like that, yes. Especially, you know, that with the statewide rent control and, and eviction control applying to buildings that are 15 years and older. I mean, that's a lot of the housing stock in San Francisco. So. And, and I assume elsewhere. I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, and I assume elsewhere, uh, Oakland, a lot of the housing stock is older too. And there's some other change, some other changes that are we're going to be talking about. You've mentioned about um, evictions and some of that changing. One of the more interesting changes I saw this year, I think we can squeeze it in before the station break, is SB 712 they actually took the time to enact a law to make provision for electric scooters and bicycles in the apartments? Yes. Uh, it can be stored in the rental unit. <clears throat> but the, but there have to be constraints on it because the the lithium batteries, they, especially, I mean, in San Francisco, it's been a, a lot. They, they, um, they explode or they, they catch fire, and it's a problematic in the units. When people were bringing them in, now they've got you know there there are res- restrictions on how big they can be, how many can be in a particularly sized unit, that sort of thing. And it seems that they put some restraints on the type of battery. The battery has to meet certain safety standards. Yes. Also, the landlord can alternatively say, "I have an outside storage unit for you outside your unit. You have to use that, and hopefully a fireproof one." Yeah. <laughs> Locked. Or a theft-proof one, right? Yes. That's the problem. But in the locked concrete vault. <laughs> I think we've got... So, yeah. Um, 
And another odd one, but interesting, uh, before people can be evicted from nursing homes, they have to be given uh, written information about why they are being evicted from the nursing home. Yes, that's Assembly Bill 1620. Oh, no, that's a different one. I'm sorry. Uh, that's a, a that's the right of a tenant to uh, who's disabled to move to a ground floor unit without increasing rent. Um, but yes, nursing home. Uh, uh, also, you can't evict without giving the um, person uh, a um, uh, copies of a discharge plan and also the reasons why they're being asked to move. So not you only know. do they have to establish the reason that they're leaving, but they need to make some provision for first for where they're going to go or what arrangements have been made. They can't just cut them loose on the streets, which is a, an important safeguard. You're mm-hmm. listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And now back to your legal rights with Jeff Hayden. One of the things we didn't get too much in the first half hour was evictions. One of the problems that recurs is um, nuisance tenants where perhaps the police have been there, an ambulance has been there, a fire, and it disturbs the quiet enjoyment of other neighbors, but I understand the legislature's placed some controls on that to make it a little harder for cities to disproportionately hit these folks. Are you familiar with those? Not, I'm, I'm not as up on them as I should be probably. Um, So I will be doing a little bit, a little bit more reading. David. Right. I am the same as Jessica. And, <laughs> well, I can tell you. So Jeff, which ones? We can talk about it next time. But um, this came out of AB 1418. Makes it harder to evict a nuisance tenant in that it prohibits the cities and counties from adopting nuisance ordinance ordinances that require or encourage penalties or even an eviction if a tenant or family member had an interaction with law enforcement or criminal conviction. So part of it is that it makes it hard for them or impossible or, or unlawful for them to ask on the way in. By the way, if you ever had a misdemeanor, anything like that. But again, what they're trying to do is find a balance between maintaining the peaceful enjoyment of the tenants while at the same time not further victimizing the victim. Right. You know, now that you explain a little bit. I, I do remember reading about it and apparently the the problem is, you know, um people were being evicted for things that, you know, their son, their daughter, their grandfather, their uncle, whomever was in the place as well were doing. And, you know, if if it's easier to remove or bar 
the person who's causing the problem, but the other tenant, you know, but the other person is, is, you know, they should not be penalized for that by being evicted. It's, it's seems to be a, a thought extension of the protections of, for domestic violence victims, but domestic violence victims can't be evicted for the um, actions of the, their abuser. And so it seems to come from the same thought process. They're trying to protect people who are victims of other folks. Or at least within limits. Yes. Um, there's always the danger when you're an enabler that you may bring on more than, uh, than, than you wish. Mm. That's true, too. I mean, you know, there'd have to be some sort of investigation into how much the person who would normally be protected by this new rule is contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that things such as concealing the person so that the neighbors see them climbing up the fire escape and in the window or things like that to avoid detection. Allowing that and facilitating that, probably one of those things that might make the sure. victim not look like an innocent victim anymore. Sure. I, I agree. That's probably one scenario. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM. What's the status of the landlord-tenant relationship? We're here tonight talking about recent changes in landlord-tenant law. My guests tonight are David Finkelstein and Jessica Chilek. They're among the best landlord-tenant attorneys in the region. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic of landlord-tenant law. You don't have to jump in right where we are in our conversation. And... We just had a caller who wishes to remain off the air, but poses a challenging question. Someone who was asking about the landlord's responsibility for getting rid of mold. Ah, mold. <laughs> That's always a hard one, especially in San Francisco in the Bay Area where, and, and the peninsula where there's a lot of fog and other moisture, and especially a lot of moisture right now. If it's just, you know, um, a little bit of the mold that you get if you don't, you know, mop out your, your bathtub every time you shower or something like that, um, that's the tenant's responsibility. But if it's something more than that, if it's something that is either caused by or includes broken windows or, you know, the windowsills are, are moldy because of rain intrusion, that sort of thing. The landlord does have an obligation to take care of that. Yeah, I I always tell my landlord clients that if there's a, a complaint of mold other than what Jessica said, you know, around the bathtub or whatever, that they should have a licensed mold inspection done, performed, test the air, and have them send it to the lab. <laughs> I think it costs three or four hundred dollars to do that, and um, so that's what I recommend. And and if if it is uh, above the normal uh, 
of uh, exposure or if it's a black mold that is a serious mold uh, bacteria, then I tell the, the uh, my client that they have to re- remediate it. And they may have to offer the tenant some temporary alternate alternative housing during that time. Right. And, you know, and what we're talking about here is like the pervasive mold that gets into the walls and things from damaged plumbing or damaged windows, that sort of thing. Um, and the thing or is... bad roof or things like that. Yes, bad when roof. When it starts getting uh, in the walls and it starts getting airborne, it's a big problem. And, you know, the thing is, it's it's hard... I. I you know, I have some sympathy for landlords here because it is difficult to have to take apart the walls and make sure all of that is cleaned out. But that's what must be done, you know, in order to protect the health of the tenants. Otherwise, you can you the landlord may be opening themselves up for a, a lawsuit for you know physical and mental da- you know health damages for mold exposure. It's always safe safest, I would think, to err on the side of getting the test so you know for sure. But mm-hmm. also, if the people have had ever have had a problem with rodents and there are leavings behind in the walls or carpets or the like, I'm told that that could possibly give a false positive. So eyes open, full disclosure, uh, it, it's always safe. Let me turn it to Fran from San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, I have a very general question. Um, wanting to know if it's the same as all has been. Um, the standard amount of days for, for example, in a regular apartment building, non-payment of rent, I thought it was 30 days notice. Um, is that correct still? Well, non-payment of rent is three Day, three court days. They don't count weekends or holidays. So that's three, the single digit number three. 30 days is for, you know, terminating a tenancy that's not protected by local oh. or state rent control, oh. that sort of thing. Um, nuisances that cannot be abated are three day notices um, to vacate, you know, um, and, and, you know, the nuisances that can be abated require a bit longer. In Cal- in San Francisco, we have a 10-day warning before you can do the that sort of notice. If it's um, a eviction for something other than non-payment of rent, it's, uh, you know, there, there are different time frames. Does that mean a tenant has to move out in three days? Trying to understand that. Yeah, well, well here's, the, here's the problem. I get that question all the time. Uh-huh. And... The answer is that the lease, uh, if if the tenant has not cured and paid the uh, rent that's in default, uh, the lease is terminated. But it's it's still, and it's hard to explain to a layman uh, landlord. The lease, you can't go in and change the locks and throw the furniture out on the street. That's absolutely a no-no. So you have to go to court. And usually it means you need an attorney and f- to file and serve what's called an unlawful detainer complaint. And, and that gives, and, and that, the three-day notice and the proof of service would be attached to that complaint. It would mm-hmm. be served on the tenant, and the tenant has five days to answer. 
if the tenant That's is not answered days. in five days, five court days, then uh, then a default could be taken, and then the judge you still need a judgment, and the judgment would be given to the sheriff. The sheriff, when it, he gets around to it, and that could take two or three weeks, would post his a sheriff's five day notice on the door, and then would evict on the date specified at least five days from the day he posted it. So that's the whole eviction process. Now, if the tenant files an answer rather than defaults, then it goes to court and there's a settlement conference and there's a trial. And, um, yeah. and But I the thing is, yeah, the thing ahead. is that the tenant gets to stay in the property until there is either a judgment for possession or a settlement agreement. So, yeah. you know... So, Automatic self help. The landlord, you cannot change the locks after the three days. That's a big no no. It could cost you many, many tens of thousands of dollars in San Francisco if you were to do something like that. Yeah. So, are, were you call, uh, trying to figure out the, the number of days from the landlord point of view or the tenant point of view or both? Um, from the tenant point of view, and would you be able to? Use your security for that month's rent um, if that happened to somebody? No, not legally. No. Uh, practically speaking, uh, most landlords, if you if you were to leave after the three days and they had the, the month's security, they're not going to sue you. Uh, mm-hmm. Although theoretically they can because they could say... Um, when you left, there was damage to the apartment that was, exceeds one month's rent. So, therefore, I was never paid that m- a month's rent that was specified in the three-day notice, and you still owe it to me. But most landlords would would be thankful that you left and would probably not- Without incurring the costs of an unlawful okay. detainer lawsuit. Yeah. Because they're expensive. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Great show. Thank you, Jeff Hayden, and all the people on the show. You're, it's wonderful that you do this. Sure. And thank you for joining us. We appreciate okay. it. Welcome back anytime, and I hope this works out for you. Oh, I don't have a problem. I just want to know. Oh, oh I see. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it was a good question. Somebody else could. You know, it, it's a very Absolutely. basic question. I don't think people know. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much Thank for joining you. us. Let me turn it to Arden from San Francisco. Welcome to your legal um, rights. Hello. Um, can you hear me? We can. Um, so I have a question about um, our master tenant is moving out. And and so I'm wondering if um, we're getting another person to become the master tenant if the landlord has the right to deny that it's month-to-month rent. And so I'm wondering what protections we have, if we have any about um, switching over the lease. And I guess also about um, rent hikes, if you switch over a lease. Well, this well, is more of a question for Jessica, who's, you know, uh, uh, specialized in San Francisco. But being from San Mateo County, my speculation would be that the landlord must be reasonable. It must be reasonable about accepting a substitute master tenant. So now Jessica could maybe be more specific. Actually, David, 
You're incorrect. Uh, the rule, the rules in San Francisco on master tenants, when they leave, the subtenants are supposed to leave with them unless the landlord, um, makes a new agreement with the subtenants and one of those subtenants becomes the master tenant, but they have the right to, um, raise the rent to market rate. It's considered a, a vacancy with a change of, of tenants. Okay. Um, Oh, I would say outside of San Francisco, probably that would also be the answer too. So, um, if you put a new, if you keep a master tenant and add a, a another master tenant, can you then remove the the first master tenant and sort of switch it over um, like that? Well, it's something that you can propose to the landlord if the landlord mm -hmm. is willing to do that in order to try to keep the you know lower protected rent. Um, land, but the landlord doesn't have the obligation to accept that. Okay. You know, if you can work it out that way, that's great for you. But um, you know, I, I don't I don't know if a landlord would. Okay, that makes sense. So they do have the right to evict you and not continue the the lease. Well. When the master tenant leaves, the, the way that the law looks at it is there's a contract between the landlord and the master tenant for the whole unit, mm -hmm. okay? And that is one contract, and there is a separate contract between the master tenant and each of the subtenants, okay? Yeah. So there are separate contracts there. And when, when the master tenant leaves, they have the obligation to turn over the whole unit empty, Okay, so the tenants are supposed to go at the same time the master tenant is. So when if a master tenant gives a 30-day notice that they're going to leave at the end of February or whatever, then the subtenants are supposed to relocate at that time also. However, there's nothing that says in those 30 days that the subtenants can't talk with the landlord and try to work out, you know, some kind of arrangement for them to continue uh -huh. to stay. Okay, well, thank you for answering my question. Thank sure. you for joining us. Okay, I wish you well. Goodbye. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Let me turn it over to Elisa from Oakland. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi. I, I, I was wanted to know if a landlord can require uh, renter's insurance, and if so, can they require it up to a certain amount of liability? Um, yes, landlords can uh, require rental insurance in their rental agreements. Um, I'm not sure if they can specify how much because that's going to depend on whether the tenant can get that, you know? Um, yes. But there's a, because tenants may, rental insurance may not go that high or, you know, I, I don't know <clears throat> which, uh, which perspective you're looking at. Are you uh, from the tenant or the landlord point of view? So it may be what the ten tenant can get or not not be able to get, but a landlord can require that. Um, yeah, no, I have to get rental insurance, like four hundred dollars a month, and I thought that's a lot of money for renters' insurance. Anyway, okay, that is all. Thank many, uh, 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 many landlords, especially the larger landlords on the peninsula where I practice in San Mateo County and Santa Clara County, do require. Uh, uh, renter's insurance, but it's usually uh, the idea is to cover the tenant's possessions, uh, 
within the unit. Um, right. So because I, don't see, I don't see how you how the landlord could justify four hundred dollars a month for anything like that. Well, my, my, the insurance that I have covers like uh, if I had to move out because, like, say the building burned down or something, it covers a certain number of months, uh, like in a hotel or, you know, somewhere that I could stay. Or if mm-hmm. I had to move out for the repairs, that would cover that. Anyway, thank you for the information. That is all. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Hope that was some help. And let me turn it to Anne from San Francisco. Hi. Um, I have a question that came from the previous caller. Um, we, I've lived in the same rental unit for over 30 years, and um, the master tenant would like, if the master tenant were to leave, there's another housemate who's actually the senior tenant. He's lived here longer than the master tenant, but like 40 years ago gave the rent over to to this person to become the master tenant if 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 the master tenant wanted to leave could the senior tenant then become the master tenant by law yes well i mean is is there a written is there a written contract um, is you there know, a written rental agreement from the master tenant to the in the landlord, or is there a rent subtenancy agreements? There is no contract. There's no lease. It was if there was one, it was lost. I don't know, but there's not no con- written contract. So let me let me ask you this: Do the uh, uh, does the senior tenant or the other tenants do they pay the landlord directly, or do they pay? To the this master tenant, and only the master tenant pays the landlord. What's what's the, the payment? Ladder. The latter. The master tenant pays. We we pay the master tenant, and he pays the landlord. Yeah. Well, it seemed to me that it would be the way Jessica was saying that. Uh, although it is oral, so that's unusual. Uh, what do you think, Jessica? Well, without a written contract, there, I mean, and you're also in month to month at this point. So, I mean, one of the things that you can do is try to have one of the other people um, submit the check, the payment to the landlord. And if they accept it, then they have accepted payment from that person and, and that means they can't they shouldn't evict that person you know you try to do it you know try to establish it maybe the senior person could do it for the last few months that the master tenant is going to be there you know or something like that and if the landlord accepts it then there's an argument that the landlord has already accepted rent from the senior tenant yeah that procedure that should work right 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 well we have proof that um, of how long each person has lived here. We do have But it's that. not really the question isn't really how how long you've lived there, it's who's responsible for paying the rent for the whole place to the landlord. That's okay. what the question is. That's okay. the contract that's it is at issue here. 
Thank you. I got it. Thank you very much. You're You're welcome. And thank you for joining us. And let me turn it to Tony from Oakland. Tony, welcome to your legal rights. Uh, hi there. Can you hear me? We hear you. You're on, you're on the air. Uh, awesome. I have uh, a couple of questions kind of intertwined. I guess the first part is being uh, my lease is up now. Am I required to uh, re-sign a lease or can I just be month to month? Well, it depends on your landlord, okay? Because in okay. California, if you continue to offer rent payments after your lease is expired and your landlord accepts them, that's a month-to-month. It automatically converts. Um, okay. Some landlords prefer to have a new lease signed every year, and as long as it is materially the same, there's nothing new or big or surprising about it, then it that you know that's generally considered okay. You know, there can't be, they're taking away your storage or your parking or something like that, or there's some, you know, new weird charges that you haven't had before. If you sign those, then you agree to them. But um, if, if, if you're, it's a substantially the same, materially the same lease, okay. uh, and the landlord wants you to sign it, you, you can. Um, but if you just continue paying your rent um, and they accept it, then. It converts to month to month under state law. Automatically. Okay. That's a, I, I did a program, the guarantors. Have you heard of that? Like to get into the place? I didn't have to pay a deposit necessarily. I paid this program. And I got an email from them saying, oh, we want you to sign the new lease. But I haven't got anything from the actual landlord saying, we want you to sign a new lease. And I'd rather just be month to month. Okay. Um, well, you should probably check with your program people and see if, the, you know, um, signing a new lease is something that the program requires to continue helping you or, you know, or okay. something like that. Or, um, if they need you to sign a new lease to make sure because their statistics require that you be housed for, you know, a year at a time or something like that. Okay. You might check your yeah. lease form itself too. The lease forms oftentimes will tell you on the back, uh, state law is going to, Governed to a point, but I think that if your lease specifies, that may prevail. Oh, okay, so I'll check my lease to make sure. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and there are there are tenant agencies, you know, nonprofit agencies in Alameda County that you know can help you understand your lease. Okay, cool, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in your legal rights. Mm-hmm. You know. A couple things, I have a real couple brief issues I wanted to roll, run over with you guys before we run out of time. We're getting kind of close. But while we're on the subject of evictions, two other topics that are related come up. One of them modifies the state's no-fault just-cause eviction to make it harder for a landlord to dislodge a tenant. What exactly is that, and when does it kick in? And we have two minutes. Dave? Uh, yeah, I can. I have my notes here about that. Uh, tightens up requirements. Uh, just, um, um, <clears throat> just a minute here. My notes from the last time we all spoke about it was hearing both of you say that it requires. It doesn't kick in for a while. I think it doesn't kick in till April. But you told us something about it requiring that. If someone's evicted for an owner move-in, they really have to move in. 
Yes, yes. that's the main change was that uh, uh, if an owner gives a notice, the owner actually has to move in and has to stay in there a certain amount of time. Can't just mm-hmm. move in for 30 days and then move out. Right, because, you know, if you're displacing a tenant that you, you, because to move in, they really want you to move in and stay. That's all, That's been the law in San Francisco under the local rent ordinance for a long time. The tenant has, the owner has to move in within two months and stay 36 consecutive months, and they have to file reports for five years. Yeah, so, um, there's also a change if the owner sends a notice that they're going to do a substantial uh, remodeling to the unit that's going to take more than 30 days. They have to, uh, before they can give the notice, they have to actually have a permit to uh, issue to do that work. And then they actually have to do the work. Right. We're in violation. They're trying to limit the ability of the landlord to game the system by saying, oh, I'm going to move in and then not moving in, or I'm going to, you know, do substantial remodeling and then never do the work. Or or to game the system by uh, saying it's going to take more than 30 days, and then all they do is replace the uh, refrigerator and the microwave and the stove, and then they put it out uh, to rent to someone else at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. As always... We have lots more material long after we ran out of time, but I would love to pick it up again with you in, in March when we're back again. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KLW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, where we've tonight discussed what's new in landlord-tenant law. Our guests tonight have been, set, have been landlord-tenant attorneys extraordinaire, Jessica Chalik and of San Francisco and David Finkelstein of San Mateo. And our final guest tonight, has been all of you. What do you do when your neighbor is loud, disruptive, dangerous, or what can the city do for you? A restraining order? Please join us again for your legal rights next week when we speak to City Attorney Lance Bayer, Redwood City Attorney Emily Andrews, and East Bay Attorney Nabil Ahmed. Best of all, as always, we'll take your calls and answer your questions. That's your legal rights Wednesday at 6 p.m. A big thanks to tonight's guests. Jessica Chalik and David Finkelstein, and to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Have a good night and zealously guard your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.